0: In this interview, I'm joined by Beth Upton, meditation teacher, ex-nun, and student of the renowned meditation master Pa Ok Beth reveals why reading economics at Cambridge caused her to fracture with today's economic system, and eventually led to her ordination as a nun in Myanmar. Beth details her rigorous training under renowned meditation master Pa Ok addresses skepticism of the Vishuddhi Magga and criticizes so-called soft jhana teachings as watered-down dharma. Beth contrasts popular soft jhana teachings with how she was trained at Pa Auk. discusses the Ten Fetter Model of Enlightenment, and explains how samadhi can be used to remember past lives, and generate siddhi such as the ability to see devas and ghosts. So without further ado, Beth Upton. Beth Upton, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Nice to meet you.
0: Yeah, likewise. I'm very delighted to be talking with you today. And gosh, you've had a very interesting life, an interesting life path. And I'd like to uh, dive into some of those details. But before we get into your encounter with meditation, I'm wondering, could you say a little bit about your childhood and upbringing? I know you were born in 1982 in London, so so your website says. And so I'm curious about your upbringing and uh, how it was you, you came to study economics at Cambridge University and things of that nature.
1: Yeah, um, very normal upbringing, I think. Like I, I grew up in Harrow, which is like an outer London um, borough. So sort of suburban, working class, n- normal family dukkah. Um I, Yeah, not... I don't have too much to say about it, not too much drama there. And then I did well at school, so um, I sort of had like a real hunger for knowledge and wanting to find out about how the world works. And I had done a lot of like maths and science, sciences. And then at some point I sort of hit a limit with science because I was just feeling like it didn't explain the human element enough. And somewhere in my naivety, I thought that economics might give that rigorous, in depth answer to the human condition. So I chose that for my degree, and then I, I, I was wrong. They just taught me a lot about money. Yeah.
0: I'm curious which college you, you studied at, and maybe you could say a little bit more about your, your time at Cambridge to study economics.
1: Um, so I was at Robinson College in Cambridge. And I mean that place gave me a lot. I don't want to speak too bad about Cambridge. It gave me like a confidence, and it taught me how to be very productive. Um, I met a lot of incredible people. There was a lot of privilege there, Um, but it wasn't a happy time of my life. It's a lot of pressure. I wasn't particularly interested in the subject that I was studying. I was heartbroken for a big chunk of my time there. Um, And so what I really came out of that three years with was an understanding that like, I didn't want to be an investment banker. And yeah, like I really got it hammered into me, the, the like the trouble at the heart of money. So from there, I started to seek a different way. I didn't really know quite what I was looking for, but I just wanted to seek a different way.
0: That's very intriguing. And what would you say is the trouble that the heart of money that you discovered and you felt was hammered into at that time?
1: It's a few things. I think one is money is inherently distorting value. It's something that's very central. So we've got like in this sort of, economic ideals the price of something is just a reflection of its supply and its demand and like great there you get the price and um, actually what we have is like a heavily heavily distorted supply which is like distorted by people's defilements and then a heavily heavily distorted demand which is distorted by things like lies and manipulation and advertising and things like that so the prices of things become a gross distortion of their true value then also we see with economics the tendency to um, overvalue things that are quantifiable because they can be included in the model and things that are difficult to quantify like our mental health and the environment and love and happiness and these things that we really value those things are just external to the model and so they get completely undervalued by economic thinking so, I mean, there are two really central problems. Their view of the human being is like very stripped back from any kind of humanity. There's, anyway, i go on about it forever, but like loads of just really core things that fell off to me. And I was seeing like, wow, the world is built on these assumptions. So much of our lives is revolving around these really distorted and weird assumptions that we've made about how life works. And I didn't want to base my life on that.
0: That's interesting that you include the defilements. I suppose you wouldn't have seen it in quite those terms at that time. Um, I'm imagining, I don't know, Rolex, a distorted supply, maybe um, producing less than they could, uh, strict authorised dealer controls, things of that nature, to increase the uh, desirability, I suppose.
1: Yeah, and, then and a massively distorted demand. Like They've managed to convince people that they need this watch
0: right and the reasons people want the watch are I suppose fairly diverse but telling the time um, surely it's not top of the list
1: <laughs> right and like we can see it in in all sorts of choices that we make so when I was a nun for I was a nun for 10 years and there after a while you stop to think about your food in monetary terms your food's offered to you, you eat what you're given and if we're going to place any sort of a value on the food if we're going to prefer one meal over another usually we're tapped into the intention of the donor and if we see like a beautiful loving intention of the donor we appreciate the meal more that's the flow that we're in we might make choices about what we eat based on what feels good for our body if we're lucky enough to have choice as a monastic but since i disrobed and you go to the supermarket you look at the price you do, I mean you might your ideals might tell you to look at oh okay, I'll buy the, I'll buy the chocolate that where they treated their workers the best and they put the most love in. but realistically, you look at the price and everything else is external to the model and so we distort mm-hmm. where our true values are for our own well-being and the well-being of others because of the economic system that we're in.
0: I'm curious about um, perhaps that's something for later, but maybe I'll say something about it now. I'm curious about, uh, of course, as a monastic, you, as you say, uh, as you report, uh, think less and less about money and monetary value and mm. t- tune into things like the donation, the uh, intention, or a motivation of the donor. Presumably, the donor, in order for the monastic to have that possibility, the donor has to be plugged into some sort of, um, I suppose,
1: faith in the Dharma.
0: But in order to acquire the resources to donate they themselves have to be concerned with the value of things and money and so on and through their faith with
1: the with the monetary economy it's one of the reasons why I disrobed so and there were lots of reasons that I made that decision but I noticed that last couple of years of my ordained life I was already sort of over it you know like I'd done it for eight years I very much ordained because I was in love with the meditation practice. And then I'd learned the training that they were teaching in the monastery. And the thing that kept me ordained was I really don't want to have to use money again. I just really don't want to have to do that. It's such a, I was in such a beautiful flow of living by gift and she thought, Oh no. At the same time I was growing a community in, in Spain that was dependent on the money that we were getting from other people. And there was a judgment in me, there was an aversion to it. And so I just, like, this is what I need to go and do. So I did, I just wrote a job, went and did care work for the minimum wage. It was good for me. Um, and the, the problem is systemic, you know? And that's a big, big sacrifice that those Burmese lay people make. And they do it out of love for the Dharma.
0: Where are you now at with this, um, I suppose, uh, conundrum that began in your economic studies in Cambridge, and continued, I suppose, for better or worse, through your monastic period, and now you're, as you say, out of that. You're uh, no longer a nun. What's your current thinking on that in terms of money and how it fits with you personally, and how it fits? You know, you're talking systemically and. Uh, Do you have thoughts, system-wide thoughts, et cetera, also?
1: Um, Yes, I'm trying to find a middle way, and I definitely don't have it perfect, but I'm doing all of my work by Dana, which means I, I never charge a price for my work. I essentially give it away, and I allow people to give whatever they feel is right in return. It works really well for me. So on the side of, actually, I would say it's one of the most beautiful things In my life at the moment is this living and working by dana and that works really well for me and it sits really well with my ethics on the side of receiving money and i still haven't figured out yet the bit about spending money because so many things that we need when we do that spend we've like legitimized some distortion of values in that moment of the spend and so it's something that i'm still trying to figure out in my sort of medium-term vision is the building of community where we can meet more of our needs in a, in a wholesome way. But for the time being, I'm just trying to find, yeah, like a middle way with it. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's, that's quite interesting. So I think it's an unusual jumping off point. Um, mm. so people talk about suffering or people talk about uh, curiosity about mystical states and so on. That's an interesting fracture with the path you're on to, be, to do with fundamentally the heart of economics it's very interesting indeed
1: mm-hmm. it's not separate it's not separate like when we start to so an increasing part of my work as well is communities or systems that were previously money-based moving them towards Dana based and What we see is when we start to move towards a gift-based system, a dharma-based system, many other aspects of dharma flood in. So community immediately starts to flood in. For example, renunciation starts to flood in. When we're renounced, there's humility there. Faith arises and love and trust and connection starts to flood in. Many other aspects of the dharma start to flourish when we move towards a dharma-based system.
0: Hmm. Very fascinating. Do you think um, such communities, that way of operating, could, be any, could ever be anything other than, if you want an island in the broader ocean of the economic system, a sort of separate island within the broader? I'm thinking, for example, of money, as it's often described as a, an efficient means of transfer of value. That's sort of an idea and i just understand that that's not necessarily that's a rather simplistic view of how money's understood and used today but there's something about the efficiency i may not have a sheep to give you for your um, you know basket uh, right now but i had one previously and i have some money left over you know from that which i can use as a means of transferring. So, so i'm curious do you think at a level of complexity uh societally or systemically money becomes or some form of um currency becomes inevitable
1: yes yeah as a means as a as a transferring system yes but that's not the function that money's currently doing in our economy money's created by debt there's always more debt than money to keep the money system going we need to be increasingly commodifying more and more and more of what previously used to be commons it used to be open source for everybody but we all feel poor in the current monetary system And so there's always the need to like grab something that previously wasn't in the money realm and turn it into a source of money. We all end up collectively poorer by that because there's less in the commons for us to share and feel safe. There's less in the realm of community. We see that now even unfortunately starting to happen with the Dharma. I've heard stories like I'm new to Dharma in America, but I've heard people have started to claim intellectual property over their Dharma talks. You know, this Dharma that's been handed down to us as commons, two and a half thousand years. Now we're like, have that bit, I'll charge some money for it. So this is what our current monetary system is doing. It's not just a transfer of wealth. If money were neutral like that in our current financial system, then we would flow in the gift much more naturally. But we don't. At the moment, there's, there's an incentive when you have money to hold on to it because money grows money. It's not just a transfer of wealth; it's a creator of increased wealth.
0: Okay, yeah, that's, that's interesting indeed. So you're in a, still in the process of thinking, thinking through exactly how you're uh, how you're going to exist within this sort of this system, and and how communities could work. As you said, very interesting indeed. Yeah,
1: yeah. So it's working well for me on the side of um, receiving, like doing my work by Dana and how I earn my money. I feel really good about. I mean, I'm not rich, but it was an experiment and I wasn't sure if I'd be able to survive just full time teaching Dharma, just by gift. And now I see I can survive, not with financial privilege at all, but I can survive. And that's huge. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's just a case of scaling that up.
0: It certainly helps. I think being in America, as you are now teaching quite a lot compared to UK, I think uh, there, perhaps the market, Oh, you're, you're frowning, maybe not. The market... It's uh, much
1: more difficult in America.
0: Really? Tell
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's much more difficult in America. Because, like, it's the home of capitalism, isn't it?
0: Yeah, that's the point. Then there's a lot more people who are willing to give you money for teaching, right?
1: It's just much more normalised to charge money for teaching here. Oh, I see. It's much more normalised to commodify things here. Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So... Um, You went traveling for uh, some years uh, after leaving Cambridge and then ended up volunteering at a Tibetan center, uh, meditation center. And that was your first... I
1: didn't know that. Did I tell you that?
0: No, I do a bit of research for these things. (laughs) Have I been stalking you? Not at all. I've been researching you a bit. It's uh, only polite, I think, when you're interviewing somebody to Mm. do
1: a bit of research. Yeah, that's true. I did do that.
0: Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could uh, tell us a bit about that and um, how it was you went from there to Myanmar.
1: Yeah, so it was a little bit roundabout. I mean, so I left and like I said, I was just knew I had to find a different way. I worked in London for about a year or something just to get a little bit of money together. And then I just like had to get out. Um, And that was around the time when I went to the Shetlands you know, just like that young need in me to like get out. So I didn't know where I was going or what I was doing. I just wanted to look for something else. And I did a bunch of things. I um, I did like some volunteering, some organic farming, au pairing, all of these things that you could do at that time. And just as part of that, I ended up at this little Buddhist center. And... You know, it was like the first. They had a lama there from Tibet visiting, and he spoke about the Four Noble Truths. He spoke about compassion. Um, it just felt like what I'd been waiting to hear, or something. It really hit me deeply. It was like, oh yes, thank you. Finally, somebody's speaking the truth to me. And so I knew I it was something that I needed to give more attention to. Um, but also I wasn't yet done with exploring the world and seeing what was out there. So it took me another couple of years before I finally settled down and ordained.
0: I'd like to ask you, of course, quite a bit about your ordained life, where you studied under the Master pao Seador, yeah. a very, very renowned meditation master uh, notoriously rigorous actually and uh in fact the meditations that you teach and you've described in your youtube channel which of course i'll link in the show notes below really remarkable um deep uh meditations from that tradition that you've you've explored uh something does come to mind did you have any religious orientation growing up uh for example do you come from any kind of religious context
1: no i went to like the brownies and the girl guides and then it was only afterwards i was like they were religious you know they kind of sneak it in <laughs> i was like oh that's what they were about no and no no religion wasn't a big flavor in my upbringing
0: yeah those are like the girl scouts in the uk yeah yeah, yeah. also we had those in scotland yeah very funny okay so you didn't have that that's very interesting you were ordained in 2008 yeah and you were a nun for 10 years yeah five of which were spent quite directly under Pao Kseido and his senior teachers
1: yeah. and the
0: other five um training in various other methods which i'd like to ask you about hmm. i'm curious if you if you do you remember the first time you met Pao Kseido perhaps you could say yeah. a little about who he is i think m- most listeners will perhaps have heard the name could you say a bit about who he is and you've got a very lovely video on your youtube channel interviewing him great video uh, could you say a little bit about Pao Kseido and what was do you remember the first time you met him
1: yeah i do yeah he wasn't there when i arrived at Parok, and he wasn't there when i ordained at that time i was learning from bante uravata who is a phenomenal teacher phenomenal he's i think one of the greatest teachers in the world Um. then i'd been there about a year and a half and Parok said had been away teaching in other places and he came back to lead a six-month retreat so the first time i saw him was he just We had all gathered because it was like Paul said was coming back to the monastery. So we had all gathered in the hall and they had like lined the road to offer him things and stuff. And I was just sitting there in the hall. I was very junior and he just walked in and he sat down and said a few words. And it was the first time in my life I'd really felt like my body has no choice but to bow down, you know, like just compelled with respect towards the wisdom that he was holding And then on that six-month retreat, I got to know him very well because I was interviewing with him every day and sometimes twice a day. And we developed a really close teacher-student relationship that carried through the rest of my time at part of. To describe him is really difficult. I mean, he is like the ultimate Dharma geek, you know? Like he cares about these tiny little detailed corners of the dharma like no one i've ever met before um he knows like sometimes you ask him a question and not only he knows the suta he knows the commentary and the sub commentary and the page number and the footnote just like off the top of his head he's got like this huge intellect along alongside this really deep samadhi yeah i think in in the the Dharma world today, and there's very, very few people with that depth of knowledge and depth of practice.
0: How do you think he came upon that sort of knowledge? You're talking there about deep knowledge of the texts and the doctrines. He's also very renowned and perhaps more famous, at least in America and Europe, uh, due, to his te- due to some of his t- students writing books and so on, I think, perhaps. He's also renowned meditation master, not just a scholar in that sense. So how yes. do you think he came upon all this depth of both doctrinal knowledge, scriptural knowledge, as well as uh, meditative accomplishment.
1: Yeah, he put the put the uh, put the hours in. I guess he did. Um, I don't think we can explain it all from this life. Not someone with that depth of practice. Um, he's got a really, really deep reverence for the Magga. and I think he, a lot of people when they if they ever read that book, when they read it, they read it scholarly. And he read it and he was like, I'm going to check if this is true with my own direct knowledge. And he went and did it. Went and practiced his way through the Visuddhi Magga. And it brought back to life in the world practices that were previously, you know, pretty much extinct because they weren't alive in the hearts and minds of the practitioners. And he's just taught a whole new generation of meditators how to directly observe these things. It's, it's incredible. It's incredible, incredible gift to the Dharma from one man.
0: And you yourself are initiated into many of these practices. You know, it's sometimes said, and I think you'll have heard this, uh, some people, of course, very pro the Vasudhi Magga, some anti the Vasudhi Magga, right? There's these sorts of debates. I'm also concerned with the scholarly uh, debate in this instance, but um, some, pe- some things people say about the vasudhi Magga is, oh, it's not possible what's in the Vasudhi Magga. It uh, comes from, I've heard this fear. It comes from uh, the Buddha taught something different originally. And the Vasudhi Magga is, uh, it has these Vedic influences or um, it's sort of competition and mythologizing of attainments and practices. Some of these meditations are just so outlandish and so on. It can't be done. Uh, it's unreasonably high. Have, have you heard that view, first of all? Um,
1: I've heard the view about lots of things that it's not possible anymore and it's unreasonably high. And I think that there's like a monastery of thousands of people doing it is like argument enough right like we don't really need to say anymore it is possible and I think one of the most destructive things these days to people's practice is that expectation of failure that view that it's not possible anymore is one of the core messages that I'm trying to give as a teacher is like my good like if I can do it you can do it these things are possible these deep teachings are fragile in the world they're not easy to find, but they are still here. And we preserve them through putting them into practice. Like, come on, chop chop, let's do it. Yeah.
0: Amazing. And one of the things I've heard you speak quite directly to is jhana. Mm. Uh, this distinction that is sometimes heard between hard and soft jhana. I've heard yeah. you speak speak to that distinction as uh, perhaps a polite way of giving people who haven't had I'm
1: Sometimes not very polite about it.
0: No, you don't have to be polite here. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, you, you've, you've more or less said that perhaps to be more direct, that soft Jana isn't really Jana. What people think they're having uh, down that end of, of Jana isn't really the real thing. And uh, yeah. perhaps allowing that term soft Jana is a sort of polite concession, but that real Jana is something else. I'm wondering, that's something that Paolo Selo is very famous for actually his rigorous Jana standards. And in fact, the whole path of concentration. That he teaches with its very many diverse and interesting meditation techniques, um, rigorous. He he's not um, he's not a soft China man. Let's put it that way. Could no, you could you speak no. to speak to that a you bit? Know, bit and perhaps your own experience all,
1: Yeah, I want to say he's not the only one. Right? Like there's several oh, yeah. teachers in the world that have been teaching really deep samadhi, not even only in the Buddhist religion, but in many traditions. And it's only recently that there's been any kind of controversy over what is. Samadhi, Like we've got great teachers, Deepa Mara and Ajahn Brahma, many, many teachers who are, they might have slightly different ways of getting there, but they're pretty unanimous on what constitutes Samadhi and Park was in agreement with them. And this thing about, you know, like soft jhana or whatever, I see it as part of a, a bigger trend of mm, i don't want to sound harsh but the term that comes to mind is like dumbing down watering down the dharma um and it seems to me like it's for economic reasons is to get bums on the seats is to get people through the door it's like feel good you can do it like that now like the practices that are being taught when people teach like soft jhana they're not harmful practices it's lovely to feel joy in your body a lot of people feel benefit from it the mind is wholesome like great do that but don't call it what it's not because when we misuse vocabulary like that we directly threat threaten the the continuation of the real one in the world and i think sometimes those teachers those people of influence don't realize the the damage that they're doing to the continuation of the depth of the dharma in the world so maybe mostly a vocabulary problem, partly an economic problem, when we start to value. But there's a stage of meditation that we all get to that's frustrating, where all of our worldly conditioning is activated. And we think like, I'm not getting anywhere. Am I good enough? This is frustrating. Um, our craving comes up. I wanna go deeper. I need to feel like I'm making progress. I'm putting in all of this time. Nothing's changing. It's an uncomfortable stage of the practice, but it's so rich in the Dharma. When we deal with that state with skill, we put down loads of, of self and craving and clinging and these things that are keeping us in samsara. And when we try to make that stage of meditation more comfortable by saying, oh, you're already there, that's good enough, that's progress, we really miss we miss the point, we miss the opportunity to save people's like emotional discomfort or whatever, whatever's happening at that time it's a shame
0: i'm wondering if we might clarify some of that confusion i'd like to actually mm. get back to your your time uh, your ordination and the training you you underwent there very very rigorous and intense uh, but perhaps before that uh, this agreement on samadhi and mm. um, can we can we define that then what the benchmark for samadhi is is that the right way to think of it and what the what the benchmark for jhana is and What if not Jhana? Do you think is going on when people report, say, uh, well, the soft soft Jhana experiences? uh, I suppose that probably mean anything other than non-dual absorption into the Jhana, perhaps. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe you'll tell me. I've heard that. Um, What's going on there if it's not Jhana?
1: Yeah. So if it's really Jhana, then we're really speaking about the unbroken awareness of the mind on a mental object. So you can use the word non-dual, it can can feel that way because there's no perception of the body and um, the mind's fully absorbed often in an expanded object, but it's really unbroken awareness. So there's no distraction of thought, you don't know the time, you don't know the body, you don't hear a sound, you're absorbed. For some reason, there's a completely different style of meditation, which is paying attention to the jhana factors. So when you are absorbed, there's certain qualities of mind that are predominant, that keep the mind absorbed. They are the vittaka vichara pitisuke kagata. So this is the applied thought, the sustained thought, which isn't really thinking, it's applied and sustained attention. Joy and happiness and one-pointedness, they do the function of keeping the mind there in, so you don't need to try to do it. Now, if our mind is already quite concentrated, mindfulness is well established. Maybe we've been focusing on the breath for a while, our mind is starting to focus in. If we put all our attention on joy, the joy is going to feel massive. It's going to feel amazing because we've zoomed in on it. We can flood that joy throughout the body or feel great. You'll love it. When we sustain our attention on joy or on anything, the natural result of sustained attention is that it starts to become more subtle so that joy will become more subtle we might feel like happiness is emphasized when we sustain it a little bit longer we might feel it becomes even more subtle people speak about that as being equanimity actually there will still be joy and happiness there at that time but they're being trained in a way to basically ignore it and You know, it's nice to invite joy and happiness into the practice. I'm not saying those practices are harmful or that people shouldn't do them, but it's not the same thing as jhana. And anyone who has practiced both won't have a question about it.
0: In the jhana method, should we say true jhana, we could say, or real jhana by your I don't want
1: to use a term that puts one down. (laughs) Hard jhana? <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. We need, we need a different word that isn't jhana for the other one. Because jhana is just jhana, right? It, they should call it something else, like focusing on the jhana factors or something.
0: Hmm. In, that, uh, in the jhana that you would teach, maybe that's the way to say <laughs> it, uh, yeah,
1: yeah. and
0: that you learned and yeah. practiced,
1: mm.
0: uh, one doesn't shift the attention from the object to the jhana factors, as is taught in, in other jhana methods. The idea as well, focus on, for example, the breath, until there's an arising of jhana factor, usually something like pity or something like that. And then at that time, when it's sufficiently strong, switch to the pity, and then that's your road through jhana, and you just described that. And you're, uh, the way you've been taught, uh, one doesn't take the attention off the initial object. Is that correct?
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, the jhana factors just doing their function, but they're they're not the object of attention.
0: Does one have a sense of oneself? So, for example, you know, if I sit here and meditate on my breath, I still have a sense of myself meditating on my breath. And you know, it's there. Of course, in this absorption that you're talking about, does one still have a sense of subject-object of, of oneself? What's the experience yes. in yeah, that? Yes, there
1: is, but it's much more subtle. So, a lot of the ways that we would usually a lot of the things we're usually identified with are absent in a samadhi experience the whole perception of the body is absent a lot of our control and volition is absent but there is still some much more subtle perception of self so when you're new to samadhi it feels like a non-self experience because of everything you have put down but there's still latent perception of self usually as the knower as the observer as the consciousness um, there is still a duality but again it's a much more subtle duality there's a duality of the thing that's knowing the experience um, and that's really why so many of the buddha's teachings are correcting the wrong views of the sages at the time who had samadhi because they would take it to be the final goal and the buddha was explaining no like you still have identity with the five candas even in this stage
0: it takes the application of vipassana to uproot those those more subtle levels of delusion is, is that an ignorance is that fair to say
1: yeah for almost all of the people yes yeah so i i believe it's possible maybe if the past life practice is very strong the natural wisdom is very strong there's very little craving in the mind maybe people go up through the jhanas and then just through inclination to peace their mind might incline to nibbana but for most people, we've got latent clinging that needs to be seen with wisdom. And that's really where the Vipassana practices come in.
0: Do you think it's possible to. Well, first of all, is, is Jhana or some facility with Samadhi required to practice Vipassana effectively in, in your way of, of working, or the way of working which you've learned? And uh, also, what can one expect outside of, say, deep retreat? One of the things that has been said about Pauk Seador's teaching of jhana is that it is emphasized very often one should be on secluded on retreat because it's very, it gets very, very subtle, but very, very difficult to maintain the level of um, the sort of quality of mind required for that sort of a practice in any yeah. other country.
1: So those are two very different questions. The first one, um, do you need jhana to practice deep Vipassana? The answer in brief is no. Um, But you do need a very deep access concentration to practice vipassana deeply because you need to go beyond concept. So if you're still being interrupted by thinking, you're still with that conceptual mind. So jhana is super helpful. And usually people that can get to a very deep access concentration, it's not a big jump for them to do the jhana. But I know people that have practiced very deep vipassana without having jhana concentration. So it's possible, maybe not preferable. Um, and then the second question, it's been a big part of my journey as a teacher. When I first came to America um, with Parks Hill, or 2013, he was starting up a branch in California, but later it didn't work. But anyway, that summer, some people came and they were practicing, I think it was the white casino or the light casino, some type of a jhana practice, lay people. And I remember one of them said to him, how do I practice when I'm in the supermarket, this casino? Because the casino is a purely mental object that you're supposed to hold. And I thought, what's he going to say? And he said, don't go to the supermarket. And I just thought that really summarized his worldview. You know, He's been a monk since he was like eight or 10 years old or something. And now he's in his 80s, like supermarket, what are you going to do that for? And so it was a big part of the integration I had to do actually I started to do before I disrobed when I left the monastery and I was traveling more teaching more how to maintain the depth of my practice in the world and it's now something that I also emphasize when I'm teaching so off of retreats I make myself available for ongoing instruction by zoom and teaching people in their daily lives is like been such a rewarding process for me and I see it's what people can do They can maintain the depth of their jhana practice in their daily life.
0: Oh, you've seen that that's possible?
1: Yeah, it's possible and it's common. And it's a skill set that we need to build, you know. It's not just like you go on retreat and you go back home and it's easy. No, we need to build a skill set. We need to build a lot of facility with the five hindrances. We need to learn tricks for continual practice. We need to know a lot about our daily rhythm. It forces us to clean out a lot of junk in our relational lives. The things that we need to simplify, they simplify. We need to prioritise it, but it's possible and it's common. Mm, Wow.
0: Would you say it's necessary to go on retreat to learn the jhanas initially? Or is even that something that can be done uh, in day-to-day life, sort of normal working or family life?
1: I think it's really helpful in general to be on retreat whenever we're practising at the edge of what our faculties can do. Whenever we're really, yeah, at the boundary of, our mind's capabilities it's a bit like a child learning to walk and when they're you know they're wobbly you put them in a safe environment um but i have some students it's it's not the majority but i definitely know some people just in a daily life practice they've gone deep in their samadhi
0: Mm. they're
1: the ones with very simple lives though
0: Mm. very interesting yeah it's a, you are offering uh, as well as in-person retreats, there sort are of online mentoring and all these sorts of things through, through your site, bethupton.com. Um,
1: <laughs> it was a, sorry to. Look, it was just such an uncomfortable process, like after all of these years of like you know not me, not mine, and non selfish humility <laughs> and none and where this to like have to brand myself. It was so cringe. I really. And it's still like, oh, God, I'm a dot com.
0: <laughs> you have a dot com.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's
0: very it's a very nice side, actually. Um, that was a pandemic project, I understand.
1: Yeah, it was, it was. I was very, very grateful. Actually, I wouldn't have done it if it wasn't for the support of my students. And until then, if I wanted to like announce a retreat, I didn't even have a mailing list. I'd just try and remember people off of my head and then send out an email. <laughs> And then I'd forget people and they were like, Beth, you really need to systematize this. <laughs> and so they they done it, this website and like they, they helped me through the whole, spoke me through all of the basics. And without them, I wouldn't have done it. Sahadu, sadhu, sadhu, those people know who they are.
0: I'm very interested in the curriculum that you undertook at um, PAOK. Your regime there is very intense in terms of practice. I recall you saying somewhere else that you're practicing sometimes very often, actually 10 to 12 hours a day, having just breakfast and then going and sitting in in nature for the whole day, not even meditating with the rest of the community, often just going out to some place in nature and practicing. That's really quite remarkable. I'm wondering if you could take us through somewhat the curriculum that you undertook there. I mean, the, the range of meditations you undertook. They're very cool. They're very interesting sounding.
1: So cool. It's yeah. so cool. I'm so pleased you said that because I mean, a very legitimate criticism of that part-alt system is too much detail, right? And that's like coming from Paul's personality. He loves the detail for its own sake. He loves it. And I'm very much of that nature too. I'm like, oh, a new, I don't know, like, Kalata. oh, we can, like, never mind about liberation. <laughs> like, I can just Geek out in this detail, and some people hate it. Some people are like, "You want me to do it again? I gotta see it again." And so these days, when I'm teaching, I sort of I make a lot of the detail optional, and I try and focus on the bits that people really need. But at that time when I was training, I was so enthusiastic to learn, and it didn't feel intense or rigorous. It was the opposite. My biggest complaint was not enough time to meditate. I could have just done it all day long. I was so happy. Um, and it would take a long time to go through the whole curriculum. But the basic structure is, first of all, developing samadhi. And for most people, that will be jhana. But for some people, they will practice up to a deep access concentration. And then start in the vipassana practice and the first level of Vipassana in this system, it's based on the Vipassana jnanas, is Namarupa Rupa which means defining or discerning materiality and mentality. So we're learning to see materiality and mentality on the level of ultimate reality, which means beyond concept. We're seeing it on the level that it's momentarily coming into and out of existence, if you like We're familiarizing ourselves with the building blocks of existence. And there's a whole complex training around that and learning to see these material particles and which are which and which are produced by which and everything It's fascinating. And then on the level of the mind, we see the mind is made up of individual moments arising and passing away. Each moment is comprised of a bunch of different mental factors. So we're learning to see the different functions of these moments the mental factors within a moment. And the whole thing is really a practice of breaking down compactness. So where we previously have the delusion of permanence, compactness, solidity, we're breaking it down to see that it's momentarily perishing. Then the second Vipassana Jnana is um Jnana, which is seeing the cause and effect. And because the causes of a lot of these momentary phenomena come from past lives we practice to see those past life causes as well which is super interesting as well and seeing how moments of volition in the past life produce results now how moments now produce results in a future life and then once those two foundational vipassana knowledges are there then we practice in many many ways from many different angles to deepen our understanding of Anicca, Dukha, Anatta.
0: Yeah, that's that's so amazing when you're working with those past lives uh, this is a bit of a muggle question i'm afraid um uh, but when you say see them uh, mm. you're of course working at levels of mind that are very subtle and uh, deep and etc and i mean I, i'm familiar just from reading some of the practices to do with the deconstructing of the body and the crystal body and the you know the pile of kalapas and all this sort of thing i've read about it of course never never i experienced that myself but give, with, it with,
1: give it a go give it a go
0: <laughs> but with the uh, past lives, is it? What's the experience of that in terms of the perception? Uh, is it uh, like a memory, like I might remember what I had for dinner last night, or is it vivid, as if you're there? Is it point of view? You're in the view of the past life figure. Is it third third person point of view, uh, witnessing a scene, for example? Is it like a dream, or is it like? Well, yeah. What, what's the experience of that?
1: It's such a great question. Um, so there are lots of different ways that you can remember your past lives like hypnosis or drugs or all sorts of things like regression therapy and also with samadhi is another way Um, when you remember your past life on the level of concept even if it's with samadhi you've always got to take it with a pinch of salt and the reason is that when you're in those deep states a samadhi state or a hypnotized state the mind's very suggestible to different perceptions in a samadhi state if you want to see like a purple giraffe with a green hat like bam there he is vivid as day the minds very very malleable to suggestion so when we see the past lives in this conceptual way it's very difficult to be sure is it the real one or was there something they're expecting to see that very very difficult to be sure even if it's with meditation so when we see on the level of concept it can be all of those ways you described as if we're remembering it first person or third person like a dream whatever but when we do it as a vipassana practice and to my knowledge it's the only way we can really be sure if it's the true one we see on the level of ultimate reality so you can't imagine ultimate reality the perishing of perception is included in the ultimate reality. So you can't imagine it. You could wrongly discern it, but you can't imagine it. And so, what we do, what the instruction is, is first of all to discern the ultimate materiality now, especially the mind moments. And then you will do some type of an atypical meditation. So it might be like you walk to your meditation cushion, you sit down, you practice the first jhana for five minutes, second jhana for 10 minutes back to the first jhana for five minutes and then stop. And then the instruction will be to see if you can discern the recent past. So can you see the mind moments that were arising in that first jhana? Can you see the mind moments that were arising in the switch from second to first? Can you go back and see the mind moments that were arising in switch from first to second? Go back further. Can you see the mind moments that saw your meditation cushion? Can you see the mind moments of the touch of your hand when you sat down? Like that, when we get skillful in discerning the recent past, we go back further. And at that time it's amazing because things come out that you can't remember through your normal memory. Like you might not be able to remember, like, I don't know, the second mouthful of your breakfast last Friday, but you go back and it's amazing. You can catch the the Nama there. And you go, when you get skillful, you can start jumping. So you go back two years, three years, four years. You see the mind moments when you were a child, when you were a baby, when you are in the mother's womb. And then there's no extra thing. You just go back a bit further and you're in the past life. Like that. And so we see, yeah, it's like, it's it's a fine balance between experiencing as first person and third person. In the same way that when you discern your mind now, there's a, a, your mind now, and there's the reflective awareness of it. So in the same way, but for the past. Mm, amazing. Then to check, you check the causal relationships. So you see, is there a causal link between the mentality that was arising then and the mentality that arises now? You check with karma.
0: Could you say a little more about that?
1: Yeah, so moments of volition in the past have a productive effect and that's really the magic of karma so a moment that arose in the past and perished and it no longer exists not stored anywhere nothing it didn't carry over it doesn't exist anymore but yet it has a productive power that things now are produced by it and that's a causal process that we can directly observe so we'll take something that is a karma result in this life, like our ability to see an object is a karma result. And we'll see if we can find its productive cause in this volition that was happening in the past.
0: Is that a process of inference or is one able to experience directly? the yes, link?
1: Direct observation. Yeah. Direct observation. So I was explaining this to somebody, actually, I think it was this morning or yesterday when we, don't yet have skill in directly observing our mental states. It's difficult to imagine how it's possible because our mental states have no physical characteristics. It's not a feeling in the body. There's no shape or hotness, roughness, nothing. It's a mental state, embedded in our consciousness perception. But then we get skillful and we realize these things are directly observable because they have their characteristics. They're not visible, but they've got their discernible characteristics. When we directly observe causal links, it's like one step more subtle than that. It's difficult to imagine how you can directly observe a causal link between something that's perished and something that's produced. But you can. It's the power of samadhi. It's observable by its characteristics.
0: Very interesting. Another side effect of samadhi that's sometimes discussed and that I've heard you you mention, in passing at least, is siddhi.
1: Mm-hmm. So-called
0: yeah. uh, supernatural powers, or at least unusual abilities—that's what it, maybe it would be a way of saying it. Yeah. Uh, could you say something about that? I wonder if I understand that's something that you did have some experience with. I'm wondering if you could say something about your own uh, experiences with that and and its implications.
1: Yeah. So this is like, I think Parokse had a very brave, you know? when he first started even teaching Jhana. It was like controversial. And when he started like teaching the discernment of past lives, controversial for a long time he didn't teach any kind of psychic power openly. But in recent years, maybe like because he's old and like past caring. So he started openly teaching psychic powers at part and sometimes even like insisting on it before he lets you do anything else. So there's like a preparatory practice um, that he teaches called 14 ways. And it's sort of 14 different ways of cultivating the jhanas with like changing jhanas very quickly and jumping jhanas. And anyway, it's like a a whole system and it helps the samadhi go very deep. And then it's based on that, that he will teach certain psychic powers. So some psychic powers are sort of easier than others for most people. And um, the ones that I've seen him teach the most commonly are the divine eye, which is sort of being able to maybe like see the devas, see the ghosts. If the divine eye is really well established, it's like, see what's happening with your samadhi, like on the other side of a wall or something like that. There's this lovely example of, part of a monk who developed the divine eye, and he looked directly below him at the earth and the different layers. And then he wrote it down, the color that he thought the different layers of the earth were, and then he got up and dug the hole to check. Um, and then similar to that, the divine ear, which is sort of similar, but the sounds and the remembering of the many, many hundreds of thousands of past lives and different neons. And then there's a, like a more difficult class of um, psychic powers, which is the things like walking on the water, levitating the things that's like manipulating the elements walking through the wall I never saw anybody at Park do these things but I joke sometimes with Park's here or like they made him this big lake thing outside of his cootie and I was like is that for you to practice walking on I was just joking but he's like Shh. <laughs> I don't know if you can do or not I can't do
0: could you talk a bit about the process of opening the divine eye and seeing devas and ghosts and so on. Um, when you when you did that process, I've heard it said that it's important to have an est- established uh, grounding in, I suppose, perhaps by that point, it's a bit of an academic question, but in equanimity, because it can be quite frightening to see those sorts of uh, things. I'm wondering what you think of that. Was it frightening for you when you started to see those things? In, were you able to switch it off when it's been opened? does it have to be sustained with samadhi or um is it always open uh, that, yeah
1: yeah good question so um i think experiences with devas and ghosts it comes up for most people way before they develop any psychic power um yeah usually there's some awareness of those things with a, a more rudimentary level of samadhi mm. Maybe frightening if you don't know what's going on, but we were living in in, um, in a monastery, so um, actually that's not true. Like some people sometimes frightened by. As for as for being able to turn it on and off again, I don't think it's what you can turn off. the The broader question. I mean, like it sort of sounds um you know like sensational when we talk about these things there's there's nothing sensational about it. it's no more sensational than the much more scary creatures in Myanmar, you know, like with the snakes and the, all of these kinds of things. but the broader question is as we meditate more, our sensitivity increases, our sensitivity to reality increases, and I think it's something most meditators feel is like oh that's uncomfortable how can I dull it back down again and it's important if we want to go deeper in the dharma that we don't dull that sensitivity instead we're being called to raise up our love and our acceptance to match it because really the Dharma is being calling us to be like fully switched on to reality to take it all all in fully so when we meet that discomfort of like this is a bit difficult to accept, it's really calling us to practice more metta, more acceptance.
0: Is there a reason that it's happened a few times now? When I ask you about your own experience, you answer in terms of generalizations and most people experience this and people experience that. Is there is that a deliberate uh, device?
1: It's monastic training, and you know in which we just don't speak about our own attainments. But I think it's also. You know, it's a helpful guideline laid down by the Buddha. Because we might misunderstand that the purpose of the Dharma is I can do this, I can do that, and really it's the opposite. The purpose of the Dharma is renunciation and the removal of self.
0: You have said today, if I can do it, you can do it. So there's an implication there. You're bringing your own success as part of the... To
1: encourage, to encourage, to encourage. Oftentimes... I see like if people ask me what can you do what can you do the intention behind their question isn't for me and how great I am or something like that they want to know is it possible and this is the key message I want to give yes it's possible yes yeah it doesn't matter how how skillful I may or may not be in these practices if it's possible it's what people are practicing this is what you need to know
0: I suppose if you're if you're leading with i've done it you can do it too you, you do rather invite the question uh i think but also paul can do it but uh, so some people would want to know that you had to and you certainly um at least imply it you certainly say you've done it and you made a resolution not to leave the monastic training until you'd learn what they taught and i suppose that it that you've done is you, you say very confidently freedom from suffering is possible and so on so i assume That's the attainment that you're, um, the sort of attainment that you're speaking confidently from your experience. So, you know, is it a case of sort of piecing together what you're willing to say um, uh, into what you're claiming or?
1: I'm not sure I understand the question, Um, but I think, like, like I said, there's some things if we claim something as like my achievement, we've really misrepresented what it is. I want to phrase it in terms of these things are possible for people,
0: even people like you.
1: Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yeah, and because of causes and conditions, no, like because I I met great teachers and and because of renunciation, not because of um, yeah, like worldly achievement It's not that flow.
0: I suppose um, to clarify my question, it seems fairly clear. Uh, what you're claiming, by saying anyone can do it, I've done it, you can do it too. It seems like we can infer your, your accomplishments, at least from what you're willing to confidently assert. It seems uh, somewhat of a long way around. Um, <laughs> you know.
1: Yeah, you know, it is a long way around. But like I said, I, I think those guidelines from the Buddha are helpful. And they're there for a reason. Yeah.
0: Is it the case that monastics are allowed to discuss their experiences among themselves?
1: Yes. Yeah, with their teachers, yeah.
0: But not with the muggles like myself. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's probably I for the best. Think I don't think it's like that, you know. It's not. The reason isn't secrecy. The reason is that we don't bring self into this realm. The reason is that, yeah, we don't bring all of those defilements that can come in, like competing, comparing, um, pride, those kinds of things. It's not the realm for those things. I want to encourage people, really. Like A lot of people don't know these things are possible. I want people to know it's available for them. But these don't arise because, you know, we're so great and look at what we've achieved. It's not like that. They arise out of our willingness to let go of self. hmm
0: Yeah, that's interesting. You're maintaining that monastic convention. um, (laughs) It's deeply
1: drilled into me, but I I respect it as well. It's got an important function.
0: Yeah, well, thank you for sharing the rationale behind it as well. It's very interesting indeed. You know, one of the things that you teach, which I think is super interesting, maybe we can touch on it, it's a bit specific, is uh, you, you, you give different tips in, in your videos, sort of top tips. And one, one video in which you're sharing your top tips, your top three tips are build a meditation habit, get clear on what you want meditation to do for you. And then this is the one that I wanted to ask you about. Don't choose an object that's too subtle. Uh, actually, it's two parts. Choose an object that you like and also that isn't too subtle. Um, could you explain that, that third point? I think that's something that's not often said.
1: Don't choose a meditation object that's too subtle. I don't know what more there is to say, isn't that the answer right there? <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know what else to say apart from repeat it. Don't use a meditation object that's too subtle. No, like if we're working with something that's too subtle for us, some teachers out there teaching like one way for everyone. And you know, sort of disregarding where your mind's at on that day or in that sitting. If we practice with a meditation object that's too subtle, the only way to keep our attention with it is to strain. If we make too much effort, we kill our joy. Then you've got to make more effort. You end up hating meditation. So don't do that. Choose a meditation object that's comfortable with your attention. Then you'll like meditation. It'll be easy to sustain your attention.
0: I know you're working now these days with so many students, um, in, you know, house- living householder lives. I'm wondering, do you see, uh, what sort of too subtle objects are people using? Uh, or example maybe another way of saying it would be how would one know if one's meditation object was too teacher- subtle? could actually give an example you talk in that video i'm, I'm thinking of um of depending on your, the state of your mind if your mind is very active and busy then uh, something that's too subtle as you say you have to strain to reach it so mm-hmm. sometimes you have to take a, a more coarse object of some sort and then as your mind gets down to that level you can go deeper a more subtle object and sort of track it down like that and you can't really go you can't have too much of a disparity between where you're at in your mind and and the various objects that might be possible for you later on down the road so i'm I'm wondering what uh what's a sort of common object that you see people straining to reach that they if they could just take a few steps back they might be able to get there in a more stepwise manner
1: any object people make that mistake with any object um yeah whatever meditation subject you're doing people get a bit sort of um stubborn with themselves maybe or they think i've practiced this before i should be able to practice it now and they try and strain their way back into a level of subtlety they've been previously at um any meditation object we can do that with yeah
0: i'm wondering uh You know, I know you work with a lot of students one-on-one. It's your preferred way of teaching, actually, working one-on-one, customizing to their particular uh, where they're at.
1: I really, really dislike giving Dharma talks. And usually I avoid it because Mm. I don't know what to say to a whole group of people. They're all different. But here I'm teaching this month at the Forest Refuge and it's like obligatory. We have to give talks and it's such a headache. I really hate (laughs) it. every week i'm like oh no what am i going to talk about i just got to talk straight for an hour this crowd and like they're all wearing masks you can't even see if they like it it's really <laughs> hate it
0: oh, dear. what do you what do you talk about in a situation like that so, so it's very difficult You're, that's your really nice. your thing isn't it one-on-one teaching yeah. tracking someone's experience with with all the, that's how you were taught and that's your you know the terrain and yeah. that's your specialty i think isn't it
1: yeah exactly mm. that yeah mm-hmm. yeah just i like I've described to some people this month, it's been a very, very, very difficult month for me of teaching because it's, I'm forced into a format that's not natural for me. Yep. And um, I've just been sort of examining in myself how I usually do and how it's different here. And usually I'm just like, I'm good with the Dharma and I'm open to you and I don't think about it. Don't think about what I'm going to say next. Don't plan anything, nothing. And if I do group things, I make it Q&A. So like, I'm good with the Dharma, here's the question. Like, mm. And it's very, very natural for me. But if I'm put into a situation where it's like, what's your structure and how are you going to... Like, uh, I completely lose the, the, like, the authenticity of what I'm trying to convey. Mm-hmm.
0: So what, how have you been getting around that? I'm, I'm interested. Not I can either. see the conundrum. Yeah.
1: I don't know. I just thought, God, I'm not going to come back here. Um, oh. Last last night, I I talked about Dana. Actually, like the first few questions that you were asking me earlier today, and um, we also have a weekly Q and A. So I've been taking my cues from the Q and A, and there were a few questions on the hoc method. Um, so I did a, another talk about that. Hmm. Yeah,
0: amazing. Well, I think we're, we're coming uh, near to an end. Uh, I would like to ask you a bit about, or just maybe one question about the sorts of things students come to you for. Of course, someone with your uh, meditative training who's available for private consultation is not massively common, I think. Perhaps I'm, perhaps I'm wrong about that. You can correct me if I am. Uh, I don't but know.
1: Yeah,
0: you don't I know. Haven't,
1: I haven't really researched the, the field.
0: Okay. Well, what's the sort of thing that you find people coming to you for what's in a sense, do you have an ideal student profile or something like this? Or is it anything anyone wants to know about no, meditation whatever, at all? You'll do
1: whatever comes really, I get all sorts. I get people contacting me for like sex advice and you know, oh my wife, I there's some issue. <laughs> okay, you do know I was a nun for 10 years, like I'm not sure I'm to be answering this. I get quite a lot of people come my way who um have had an experience that they can't understand, or they haven't been able to contextualize something that they've experienced. Some people who've been told they've experienced something deep and they can't get back there, they don't know what to do with it. And people who have heard about the Samadhi practices and want to do those, people who already have Samadhi, but don't have any way to go deeper in the Vipassana practices, get a lot of people come my way who someone's told them they're enlightened and they want to know if they really are um it's very common it's like probably a couple of people a week someone's told them they're enlightened
0: how do you check that
1: um in some cases it's obvious that they're mistaken from the way that they describe the experience and in some cases it's less obvious there's lots of different um some people describe it vague and it's difficult so in those cases i tell them you know it's really important to be sure it's an important thing it's really important to be sure So. Better I mean, practice systematically. If it really is, that experience will return. Better check like that. Yeah, many, many, a lot of variety, but I like the variety. No, there's no ideal student.
0: Oh, that's very interesting. Um, speaking of enlightenment, from what I understand, the Vasudhi Maga also emphasizes this four path model stream enterer, once return and never return to Arhat. Our- Does the practice change fundamentally uh, in that method Uh, at each of those junctures, past each of those junctures, for example, pre-stream entry is one doing certain practice and then after stream entry one does a sort of once returner,
1: you
0: know, direction practice or so, or is it the same set of techniques that just deepen?
1: Yeah, no big change, just a deepening, deepening of the practice. I don't know what it's like for an hour hand to be practicing the I'd love to find out. Um, but um, yeah, as as our experience of the Dharma deepens, we just do those same practices with more refinement, and like maybe we get better at targeting where our real clinging is. We get like just through life, through practice, we get more familiarity with the habit of our defilements and more skill with challenging them.
0: Is the view in the In the method you've been trained that as one progresses through the these these uh way stations of of awakening perhaps we could say or attainments path path attainments that um is it a strict ten fetter interpretation in other words it's the never returner have they completely transcended more or less uh you know hatred and aversion and greed and clinging and that sort of thing uh, those sorts of fetters Um, How how is that seen in terms of, I suppose, one's experience of craving and aversion and that sort of thing and the self as one progresses through these different waypoints?
1: Yeah, so it's definitely the way I was trained and it's the view that's adhered to in the tradition that I trained in. And I don't know anybody who reached that attainment. So we're in the realm of theory. I don't know anybody who is completely without aversion. I don't think I've ever met such a being. Yeah. Mm. Which is sad, you know. It's like a sign of the decline of the Dharma in the world. It's sad. And we've got a lot to be hopeful for still.
0: Well, thank you for being so generous with your time, Beth. This has been so fascinating. So mm-hmm. cool to speak to somebody, a student of Pao Xero, who's had such deep and rigorous training, really amazing. Is there anything that you'd like to say or that we ought to, um, ought to mention as we're bringing this now to a close?
1: No, I don't think so. You already mentioned
0: Bethupton.com. Yeah, Bethupton.com. That's the place. And of course, the note that will be in the show notes. Or you know, if you type Beth Upton meditation into Google, uh, you'll you'll find Beth that way as well. Uh, Some uh, talks on YouTube and interviews and so on. And you you do take students, private students online, and you're you're teaching all over the world, especially in America at the moment. And uh, yeah, fantastic. Well, Beth Upton, thank you very much.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, you ask really good questions. It was a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.